All right, go ahead and open up to John chapter 12. This is our fifth week of looking at the story of Lazarus. Lazarus, his, his sickness, his death, his resurrection, and now the outworking, the aftermath. And last week we saw the effect that this, that this miracle had on the Pharisees and the chief priests, the enemies of Jesus, plotting to kill him officially. And this week we're going to see the effect that this had on someone who loves Jesus and adores him. And I want to start, before we read the text, which we're going to do in just a minute, I want to start by just telling you a story and kind of trying to bring this alive a little bit. Once upon a time, there was a, there was a Jewish girl named Mary. Not that Mary, not the famous Mary, um, a different Mary, younger than her. Um, and she lived in a little town called Bethany. It was a suburb of Jerusalem. It's a place where people would stop on their way to Jerusalem for the Passover and for these other feasts that they had to go to every year. One day when she was little, probably, one of her parents came to Mary with a, a little jar, a little white jar. And the jar itself was made out of alabaster, this rare stone, and it was, it was worth a good deal of money just by itself. But the contents of the jar were almost, they, they might as well have been priceless. They were so expensive. And we can imagine her mother handing this to her and saying, this is a family heirloom. And it would take a man a year to earn enough money to buy this. So whatever you do, don't spend it all in one place. So Mary set the jar aside in her hope chest or her windowsill, somewhere, somewhere safe by all means. And there it would wait until she knew it was the right time to take it down and use it. Fast forward maybe 10 or 20 years, and Mary's brother, Lazarus, he gets sick. And it's not an ordinary sickness. He's, it's not looking good. He's very sick. And so she and her sister Martha send word to this healer that they know, a friend of theirs, someone who loves Lazarus, and, and he's about 20 miles away at the time, and they send him a messenger, and they say, Lord, the one that you love is ill. Come and do something. But Jesus doesn't show up. And Lazarus gets worse. Jesus still doesn't show up. And finally, Lazarus dies. Now Mary has to make a decision because she's in possession of a bottle of perfume that may have been used for something like a burial of someone you really loved. And the body of Lazarus has to be prepared fairly quickly so that he could be buried in, his, in a tomb. And for some reason, she decides not to take it down and not to use it on her brother. What a valuable bottle of ointment this must have been if she wouldn't even spend it on her brother. And then Jesus finally shows up after he's been buried. So he's in the tomb. Jesus does come finally. He doesn't come to the house where everyone's mourning. He, he stops outside of town and asks for them to come to him. And they come out and he says some strange things about himself. And then he asks where the tomb is, where is Lazarus buried? And they take him there and he says, roll away the stone. 
And Mary's sister, Martha, says, Lord, it, it doesn't smell good. He's dead. And he says, did I not tell you that if you believed you'd see the glory of God? Roll away the stone. And they do. And he calls Lazarus' name and he comes out. And he raises him from the dead. Now, what would this do in the heart of that man's sister? Well, we can only imagine, right? If it wasn't for this story, we could only imagine. But we're about to see what that looks like. Imagine one more moment for me. The next time they see Jesus, it hasn't been long, maybe a few weeks, since he raised Lazarus. The next time they see him, he's reclining at a table. And I picture Mary looking through the doorway around the corner at Jesus. She's holding the flask. But it wouldn't be good enough just to pour it on him. There's something else. She has an idea, but she doesn't, she doesn't know if she should. It might not be proper. She remembers her mother saying, Mary, never let down your hair in front of strange men. But she's got to do it. So she walks into the room. She makes eye contact with Jesus as she's coming over, and he knows what's in her heart. She's thinking about her brother's resurrection, but he's looking forward to his own death. And what happens now is a moment of beauty, the text tells us, that will outlive the stars in heaven. And that's what happens here. So let's read, and then let's look at all of the details and the the beautiful thing that happens here in John chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So the first thing we need to look at this morning, the very first thing to look at um, is the fact that in each of the gospels, all four of the gospels record something like this. They all record a woman coming to Jesus and wiping his feet with her hair. Um, but, there, but it seems to have happened twice. And so that we're going we're to try to harmonize these things. So in Matthew chapter 26 and in Mark 14, Jesus is at the house of a man identified as somebody named Simon the leper, which is in Bethany. And that's the same village that Jesus is in here. 
And in those accounts, an unnamed woman comes and breaks an alabaster flask and pours it over his head. And Jesus defends the woman because she's accused of being wasteful. Um, And in speaking to his disciples, he says all of the same things that he says here, essentially. But in Luke, the Luke passage is very different. It takes place earlier in the ministry of Jesus in the house of a Pharisee. And in that story, a sinful woman, she's identified as a sinful woman, anoints his feet with her tears, it says, and then wipes them with her hair and then anoints them with oil. And in the ensuing conversation that Jesus has with his host, who's a Pharisee, Jesus doesn't say anything about his burial. He talks to this man about the forgiveness of sins. So the point is that scholars are pretty sure that this happened twice. Earlier on, a different woman um, had, had done something like this to Jesus, but here it's, it's Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And it's likely that Matthew and Mark and John all record the same event, even though we're given slightly different details. The main difference is that in Matthew and Mark, the oil's poured on his head, and here in John, it's poured on his feet. Well, 12 ounces, which is the amount, about 11 and a half ounces of, of ointment, it's really too much for just one part of the body when you think about it. And it's very likely that what is happening here is that Mary anoints his entire body on his head and his feet. And as a final touch, has, has wiped his feet with her hair. Does that make sense? So, and it also makes sense when you look at the fact that in, in the book of Matthew, for example, the emphasis is on Jesus as the king of the Jews. He's presented in the book of Matthew as being the king. And so, of course, his, he would emphasize that his head was anointed in the week that he would die, right? Whereas John is emphasizing the personal relationship that he has with Mary, for whose family he has just performed this incredible miracle, and the extreme humility she showed in doing this for him, okay? So it's probably the same event. And it would mean essentially that Jesus was anointed from head to toe as he lay stretched out beside the table with his feet behind him. And the scene here, it says in verse two, they gave a dinner for him there. And the scene is a banquet. It's, it's given in his Honor, and it says that Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Usually at a common dinner, they wouldn't necessarily recline like this, but on a special occasion, they would. They would recline on couches and cushions. And it just makes sense. Of course, they're throwing a banquet for, for Jesus. The last time he was in town, everyone saw him raise the dead. So it makes sense. At parties like this, however, it would be common for a host to anoint the head of the guest of honor, but not the feet. That was not custom. Um, they, they would provide water for people to wash their feet. And typically, the only people who would touch the feet of anybody, even the guest of honor or the master of the house, would be a servant. But in no case would anyone ever touch someone's feet with their hair. That was just unheard of. So that's the... That's the setting. That's the context here. But there's something else that's worth pointing out, I think. And it's this. This was not a world in which sweet smells were common. Think about it. I think the, the best smell that you would smell on a regular basis probably would be like this, the, the, the scent of 
food cooking, those savory smells of a good meal, right? That would probably be a daily pleasure for them. And in addition to that, you'd have the, has anyone noticed how good the air smells right now here in Fallbrook? All the citrus blossoms? So there's a natural world that, that provides its own, its own fragrance like that, the occasional wildflower or something like that. But we live in an intensely perfumed world. Has anyone ever, when was the last time you were in an apartment store? You can smell the perfume counter from the other side of the store, right? Yeah, so we live in a world full of sweet smells. We take them for granted. It, they're not even that expensive, most of them. And so it's important to realize that for these people, the unsavory smells, the sour and the bitter and the pungent smells of life, the animal odors and the body odors, these were far more common in their experience than the sweet smells. And so no matter, no matter where we land on this, we can imagine what life was like aromatically, if you will. But one thing's for sure, which is that the, the experience of a powerful perfume filling a house like this, that would maybe be something like a once in a lifetime experience. Once in a lifetime. It would certainly have been something worth remembering. And we've also seen this, this just in the last chapter, this uh, topic of scent or smell or aroma come up. It's already part of this story, right? Do you remember? In, in, uh, in chapter 11, verse 39, Jesus says, take away the stone. And what does Martha say? He stinketh. It doesn't, it doesn't smell good. Martha's saying, by now there will be an odor. And we looked at, we, when we were in that text, we looked at the fact that death is, death is a stench. And if they unsealed a freshly used tomb at the wrong time, literally the entire village could be filled with the smell of death. Right? But there's a correspondingly sweet smell and it fills the house that they're in. By doing this, Mary creates a moment in the physical world, which is so often the, the, a place of pain and filth that reflects the spiritual reality of what Jesus has done for her family. Do you see it? He has taken away the stench of death and restored to them the sweet smell of life. So by filling the house that they're sitting in with the smell of this perfume, Mary is imaging what Jesus has already done. So her act of worship fits the pattern of his act of power. Do you see that? Something else here too. Jesus uses the word good a lot. It occurs dozens of times in the gospels. He uses the word good all the time. But in, in both Matthew and Mark, it's the only place in most of our Bibles where that word good is translated beautiful. And it's Jesus who says it. He says, leave her alone in Matthew and Mark. She has done a beautiful thing for me. And then he promises that wherever this gospel is preached, her act of worship will be told because of the beauty of it. This is beautiful. And I love this story. I, I, 
I don't see how you could read this and not be emotionally moved by what she does here. It is beautiful. And so this is your, if you're following along in your notes, this is your first fill in the blank here. What Mary does for him is literally a moment of beauty that you could smell. It's a moment of beauty that you could smell, but not everyone's happy about it, are they? Not everyone can smell it. So let's look at what Judas says. Judas Iscariot, verse 4, one of his disciples said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Judas is implying that someone with the resources to spend tens of thousands of dollars worth of ointment on Jesus in this way could just as well choose to be a massive blessing to the poor people in the community. And that's not invalid, is it? That is true. But the first thing to observe is that this hyper-pious line of reasoning, it actually places Mary and Martha and Lazarus under a particular kind of judgment just for being wealthy, right? So I think it's fascinating here. What we learn in this passage is that, well, the whole story demonstrates that Mary and Martha and Lazarus were from a family of means. They were wealthy. The whole story shows it. The fact that they could bury him this way, the fact that they could had this, that she had this flask of ointment. Either she went out and bought it right before this. I think that's less likely. It was probably a family heirloom. Um, but they, they do have means. That's the idea here. And, and it's just fascinating to me. Sometimes Jesus is portrayed like the only people he cared about were poor people or, or you know, crippled people or people with physical disabilities or it's like those are the only people he cared about. No, he, he, he was friendly and loving and caring to the full range of humanity. Tax collectors and political zealots and Pharisees and rich people. Not just one type of people, everyone. And that's true, and it's right here. And Judas is the one saying, you rich people, you don't even care about, you could have, what could you have done with that? You guys, you could have made that money go so far. Why are you doing this? And Judas knows offhand, by the way, how much money the perfume would have fetched at the market, doesn't he? Exactly, 300 denarii. And a denarius was a day's wage. It was a day's wage. And when you factor in all the Sabbaths and the holidays, you get almost exactly 300 work days. So this is a day's, this is a year's, a year's labor. That's what 300 denarii is. It's, it's worth 300 days of work. So in our, in, in, I don't want to call anyone out here, but in our terms, it's like something like 50,000, 70,000, right? Something like that. It's incredibly valuable. There, I, I don't know of any liquid that's this valuable in, in, today, in today's standards. In fact, there's a, there's a really entertaining, interesting story. At some point, I think it was in Egypt, someone robbed a tomb of a king, took the ointment, left the gold. So that'll tell you how valuable. I mean, they, 
This was a form of currency, among other things, right? So it's a preposterously, absurdly valuable jar of ointment. And it is, as Judas points out, an incredibly extravagant thing to do that Mary does here by any standard. They could have fed a few thousand poor people with that kind of money. Of course, we know someone who could feed a few thousand poor people just by talking. That's a different story. But before we move on, I want to I point this out to you. Because there's one of the things that this story will do to our hearts is um, we, run the, we run the risk of reading this and saying, oh, yeah, I, need to, I just need to love Jesus. This isn't, about, this isn't about taking care of people or, you know, good works. I just need to love Jesus. So let me ask you, does Jesus say here not to take care of poor people? He's not saying that. In fact, if he said that, he'd be contradicting himself, right? Because he talked constantly about taking care of the, the needy. So he does not let us off the hook. And in fact, one of the interesting things in this text is that Judas sounds, catch this. I mean, don't let your, don't let your reflexive disrespect for this man Judas veil what's happening here. He sounds like he's taking Jesus very seriously, doesn't he? He does, right? He sounds good and pious, but he's somehow missing the mark. And of course, John tells us he was a thief. He had the money bag, and that's why he said this. I think there's also something else going on here because Jesus doesn't endorse his piety. He doesn't say, yeah, he doesn't praise him. Yeah, good job. You could have taken care of the poor. This was nice. But Mary, you really could have probably helped a lot of people instead. He doesn't say that. If Judas was right, he would have said that, right? But that's not what Jesus said. But he also doesn't go back on his instructions to take care of people who need our help. So what's going on here? And what does Jesus want from us? Are we supposed to pour out everything on him or help the needy, right? Well, there's actually a parenthetical statement in verse four. There's more, parent, there's more parenthetical statements in the book of John than I think in any other book in the New Testament. And they're very interesting because when you realize what's happening inside those little parentheses, he's talking to us. He's talking directly to us, right? And he says, um, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, in case you missed it, this is the one who's gonna betray him. It's that guy. He says he was about to betray him. And what happens here with that note is that we see that Mary's act of worship is contrasted with Judas's betrayal. So directly opposed to the heart that worships Jesus in this way is the heart that betrays Jesus. In Matthew 26, it adds a little bit to what's said here. Because he says, he starts right out, why was this ointment not sold and given to the poor? In Matthew, he's quoted as saying, why this waste? Can you imagine saying something like that about Jesus? Can you imagine saying, why did you waste that on Jesus? 
He's already betraying him, isn't he? In his heart. And Judas's real mistake was thinking that lavishing this worship on Jesus and caring for the poor were mutually exclusive. He completely misunderstood the most basic facts of discipleship, which is that worshiping Jesus is what drives all true and acceptable piety. They are not separate things. Worship and duty are not two sides of a coin, like one is up or the other. That's the wrong analogy. They're in a cause and effect relationship whereby worship is the gate through which all acceptable good works come into the world. Do you see it? That's your second fill in the blank there. God doesn't accept good works that are done for any other reason than love. Now we look at what Jesus says. He answers, he defends Mary who loves him. And Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. And what is it there? We don't know because she's just spent it if we're talking about the ointment. He's not talking about that. I think what he's saying is let her have this. Let her have this moment so that when I'm buried, she can remember this moment. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. So Jesus raises the topic of his burial. And in doing so, he indicates that Mary has done more than she knew. Her act of devotion actually carries more meaning, more significance than even she intended. Because she's doing something to him that she doesn't understand yet. So this household that Jesus is in is still charged at this point, still full with the reality of Jesus having raised a dead man. That man is right next to him, living and breathing. He called him out of his tomb. And now Jesus says, I'm going to my tomb. And she's done more for me than she knows. And this is the part of this story that just absolutely blows my mind when you think about it. And I want to just, there's nothing else said about this. And so it's conjecture. But I just want to ask you, what if? What if? Jesus says, she's done this to prepare me for my burial. What if Jesus hanging on the cross still smelled like this perfume. What if he smelled it on the cross and remembered Mary's love and remembered Lazarus coming out of his tomb? Is it possible that Jesus may have been comforted on the cross in some way? by the lingering scent of this moment. If she poured it on his head, it was in his hair. And one week later, he would still would have smelled like this. That's amazing. It's, this is beautiful. 
Um, Thomas Chalmers, in a sermon entitled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, good Puritan title, he said that he said you can't just tell people to turn away from their sin without giving them something better to turn to. He said, preachers, you can't just preach against sin. You also have to portray something for their heart to turn towards when they turn away. Does that make sense? And, and he said that that's true because we are creatures who will always, always express by our actions, our lives, whatever our hearts really cherish. It's foolproof. This is the way we're made. And this is your third fill in the blank there. And this is an important point, which is that if you want to change people's behavior, you have to give them something new and beautiful to love. I'll say that again. If you want to change people's behavior, you have to give them something new and beautiful to love. That's how we work. Another way of saying this is that everyone is doing what they think is best for themselves constantly. We're all trying with every ounce of strength that we have to get what our hearts cherish the most all of the time. It's how we work. And when that strong of a desire is fixed on Jesus, when he is what we want most, then everything starts to work the way it's supposed to. There are a lot of, there are a lot of Christians who are uncomfortable with a sermon that does not include an application at the end. And I've been told this before. Tell us how to apply this. And very often there is a good and obvious application at the end of a text like this. But good gospel preaching sometimes doesn't have an immediate practical application, a practical use. And that's because I'm not trying to get you to do something. I'm trying to get you to love someone. You can threaten people. You can threaten and coerce people into a cold-hearted form of duty. But you can't threaten them into acting like Mary does here. You can't work yourself into acting like this. You can't try hard enough to be capable of anything this beautiful and meaningful. You can't do it. In the Christian life, love precedes and energizes duty. Adoring Jesus comes first. Everyone acts on whatever the heart loves most. And if that is Jesus, then your life will show it. We have to be led by the heart. And when we are, then duty takes care of itself. I promise you, this is how it works. And when you think about it, a heart that is this in love with Jesus is not going to fail to love what Jesus loves, right? This woman isn't going to neglect the poor. 
She's being prepared for a lifetime of caring for the poor after this. And all of the other duties that flow out of this kind of adoring love. Now, the cold heart of duty in this passage belongs to Judas. You see it? So Old Testament obedience, this is part of what's confusing for us. Old Testament obedience was one-dimensional. Do it because he told you to. But Christian obedience is a paradox. Do it because you want to. Do it because nothing in the world could stop you. You see the difference? It's right here in this story. Nothing could have stopped her. There, were, there is a wreath. There was an absolute moat of cultural customs standing in her way, and she still let down her hair and wiped Jesus' feet with it. So if Jesus cared for the poor, and he did better than anyone, and he still does, then after this, Mary is going to care for the poor just like him. Having worshiped Jesus like this, she's now prepared to lay down her own life because her heart is captivated by the beauty of the one she's worshiping. The word for what she does here, by the way, is prodigal. The prodigal doesn't mean wayward. We, we, we think prodigal son, the son who went away, it doesn't mean that. Prodigal means wastefully extravagant. It means spending money or resources freely and recklessly. That's what prodigal means. She's being immoderate and immodest and excessive and irresponsible. She's being prodigal here. And as she does this thing, this act of outrageous generosity, she is becoming like Jesus. Because Jesus is prodigal with his own life. Jesus poured himself out like this. Jesus washes the filthiest parts of us, not with an expensive ointment that you can buy in the store, but with his blood. His own blood and the world will be filled with the fragrance of his sacrifice. I'll go one step further as we close here and propose to you that all real life-changing worship has at some level this same savor of offensive, outrageous extravagance. This, this prodigality, this, this excessiveness is what each of us somehow must come to show towards Jesus in our lives. And the word for it is abandon. And you and, you and I may never be in a position to do something as over the top, as visible or as costly as this. But true worship leads us to abandon ourselves, to forsake our better judgment, to tune out the voice of cold and calculating prudence, and to give ourselves to the one who gave himself for us. I think it's really interesting too that Jesus did talk about wealthy people a good amount. Matthew 19, verses 23 and 24, he said that famous line that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Do you think that Mary has threaded that needle here? Yeah, this is what it looks like when someone of great wealth believes that Jesus is treasure beyond anything that this world has to offer. This is what it looks like. But we're all rich men and women in some way. What I mean is that for each one of us, there's something, something which to pour it out all in one place would be an outrage, wouldn't be proper, wouldn't be responsible. And whatever that treasure is, the highest expression of worship is to bring it to Jesus and spend it all on him. Give it to him, adorn him with whatever you have, no matter what it costs you. If you're hesitant, if you're holding back, it doesn't mean that you're not saved. It just means that you haven't fully reckoned with the stunning beauty of Jesus yet. He's not yet what your heart most desires, even if you do believe that he saved you and you have put your faith in him. Life-changing worship is always like this. It's an outrage to decent human sensibility. It's too much. It's prodigal. So at the last minute, I changed the title of this sermon to, what did I change it to? Somewhere. St. Mary's Prodigal Hearts Club. St. Mary's Prodigal Hearts Club, thank you. Has anyone ever heard the term Lonely Hearts Club? I didn't know, okay, I may be dating myself. I'm sure I am. I didn't know that was a thing. But in the UK, um, the term apparently refers to a club for people who are trying to find a lover or a friend. And if you remember, those of you who, those of you who know what I'm about to say will be dating yourselves. The Beatles album, <laughs> Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club, 1967. That's what this refers to. The Lonely Hearts Club is, is a club for people who are trying to find a lover or a friend. But what do you call the club for those who have found him? That's what we call a church. Let's pray.